And please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 3. Have the passage on the insert also. We pick up where we left off. John the Baptist has been preaching the message of repentance all around Jerusalem because the kingdom of God was at hand. Jesus had come, and he was preparing for the unveiling of the Christ. People were being baptized by the dozens, more likely the hundreds. Um, there was a revival of sorts going around in Jerusalem among the Jews, a recognition of their turning away from God. And uh, John the Baptist, this Old Testament prophet throwback, calls them back to God and to his word to repent. The King Messiah is going to come. And there's a recognition of this on the part of many people. Now the time had come for Jesus himself to come down from Nazareth, 60 miles to the north. He would now travel down to be baptized by John. Here now as I read God's holy word, and remember what I'm reading here, this is the Bible. This is God-breathed, and therefore it is authoritative and sufficient for our lives. Starting at verse 13 of Matthew 3, reading to verse 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, please come to our aid by your Holy Spirit so that we might carefully read and understand this passage. Grant to us a deepened love for you and what you have done for us through Christ and by what we hear in your word today. Oh, Lord, what a scene that we have recorded here for our viewing. As our thoughts about you are elevated and our hearts are compelled towards worship, may we also become more obedient to your word through Christ and by the help of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, you would think by my sports feed this week that something important is happening today. It's not that important to me, but I can tell it's important to a lot of people. And I keep getting these feeds of looking back at the last season of play in football, all the five greatest catches, the five greatest runs, the five biggest blunders, um, the top this and the top that. Maybe you see it. it. It's pretty prevalent now with the way you get your feeds and the sports info you get. But that was really on display this week. And I got to thinking of these top lists, how it just helps us with all the complexity to think down to some of the great things we saw, great plays. I was thinking about that in my studies this week on this baptism of Jesus. And I was wondering if you were to do a hierarchy in your own mind, a top five, let's say, top five scenes of Jesus' earthly ministry, what would you rank? Kind of think to yourself what you might put there. Now, I'll bet most of you would not have thought to put the baptism of Christ in right away. I'm not sure that I would have before I really started digging into this passage this time through. I've preached on it before in other Gospels, but thinking in that, 
that whole motif of the top five. I would, I would list them like this. I would say the resurrection of Christ has to be the top of the earthly scenes in Jesus' ministry. Um, then I would say the crucifixion itself. That'd be my two. And this isn't authoritative. I'm just saying this is what I would put in my list. Then I'd probably put the transfiguration for its mystery and for its effect and something we'll really need to see the replay for in heaven to appreciate, I think, what the transfiguration was. But it's another one of these pictures of, of the, tri, the triune God manifesting himself in some fashion. Then this is where I struggle between four and five. I think four would be the birth of Christ, uh, this, this top scene of the earthly ministry of Christ. But now having studied this more intensely this week, absolutely in the top five has to be the baptism of Jesus Christ. Rayburn said it well, his baptism by John served as his ordination to his office as the Christ. It was his outward coronation as the Prince of Life, the occasion of his official public installation as the King of Kings. This is his anointing as the Messiah King in time and space. This is the fulfillment of all that had been building up before. Very simply, the baptism of Jesus publicly identifies him now as the Messiah King who will accomplish redemption for his people. Now he's stepping into the limelight. He's stepping into the public to carry out this ministry that he has been called to. Now, there are many layers to the baptism of Jesus we might look at. I want to point out three of them to you. So follow with me in the text as we look at these different points. First of all, we can see at a very basic level that by being baptized, Jesus is humbly identifying himself with us. That's what he does through this baptism. He's not being baptized for the remission of his sins or to picture the remission of his sins. He has none. He's being baptized at base level now in order to identify with all of his people, what they too should go through. This is part of a transference that's going to happen during his earthly ministry to the time of Peter and Acts when baptism becomes the sign of the covenant, the new sign of God's promises. And here Jesus is participating in something that others will participate in to us, namely. It's showing his humility. Look at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee. For 30 years he's been in Galilee preparing, uh, living his life faithfully unto the Lord, serving as a carpenter. We don't know much about the particulars of these years. But he comes now from Galilee, 60 to 70 miles away, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. He's going there for the purpose of submitting himself to this. And of course, the response of John is understandable. All of us would think the same thing. He would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Now, remember, if we take all the gospels together, we get the full picture of this scene. John lets us know that, the writer John lets us know that John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and earlier than this declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Chronologically, that happened first. Matthew gives a shorter version. And so he's seeing Jesus come, and Jesus is presenting himself for baptism, and John wants to say, you, I, you should be baptizing me. Remember what Jesus' baptism is? It's not by water. It's the Holy Spirit. You need to baptize me is what John's saying. All it would be correct, except for Jesus has a purpose behind his being baptized. It's his anointing as the Messiah King. And Jesus answered him, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, and he consented. 
we'll consider that phrase at the next point. But for now, John, rightly taken back, but Jesus humbles himself like he does so often in his ministry as an example to us of this humility and identifying us with us. He is now the second Adam. He is that seed of the woman who's come to crush the head of the serpent. In the process, his heel will be bruised. And this is the beginning of that. He's identifying with us in his baptism. Now, I want you to pause for a moment and contemplate all the ways that Jesus does identify with us. We might be tempted to think he's holy and other and out there, and that's true of Christ, but he came as a person, as a human being, the God-man, to identify with us and represent us as the second Adam. Think of the various ways. Commonly, uh, the theologians will say he identifies with us in his poverty. Now, none of us here are in poverty. All of us have more than Jesus had on earth. But compared to what Jesus had in heaven, and he comes, he lowers himself for us like this, and he can understand what want is. All of us have experienced periods of want, and Jesus knows what want is. He knows where you are when you're in that place of need. He experienced that. He identified with us in that way when he came. He also identifies with us in our physicality, the exhaustion we feel as physical beings. He had to rest. He was wearied by his travels. He also experienced the worst of human relationships in being betrayed. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed. If you've been betrayed, it's the worst feeling there is. Well, he knows it. His own family thought he was crazy and said so. We remember Peter denying that he even knew him. He experienced all the things we've experienced. He can identify with you. He can relate with you. He was in grief when someone died. Think of when Lazarus died. He wept. Even though he knew he would raise him again, he wept for mankind's condition. He can feel that sense of grief we all have when someone dies, even if we know they go to heaven. It's just the loss of that person. It's disruptive. It's not the norm for the way creation should be. And Jesus relates with that sense by temptation. He suffered when he was under temptation. We'll see in the next chapter as the devil comes to tempt him. Hebrews says he can then help those who are being tempted. So he relates with that right today as well. Forsaken by God, that feeling of God's not with me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus identifies with us. Yes, we're seeing this divine declaration about Christ. We know he's ascended on the right hand of the Father, but make no mistake, he understands everything you're going through. There's nothing you are feeling right now or experiencing right now or wondering about that he doesn't understand. He identifies with us, and his baptism at the basic level is a display of his identifying with us, his willingness to go through what we go through. Now, I want you to see, secondly, and each of these kind of ramps up in substance as far as what this baptism of Jesus displays. The second reason for his baptism and purpose for his baptism is his baptism serves as an anointing or a consecrating for his mission that he's about to undertake. It says in verse 15, Jesus answered him, let it be so now. We've got to do this, John. This is what has to be done. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What we do here is part of God's overall plan for the fulfillment of all righteousness. So John consents. To consecrate means to be set apart for a particular mission or task. Jesus here is set apart for this mission that is given to him. 
Um, He's starting his public earthly ministry. The 30 years prior were preparatory. 30 also happens to be the age that a priest would enter into his work in the temple. What's his main work? To do the work of sacrifice. So here is Jesus at age 30 presenting himself to be consecrated to do his what? His work of sacrifice. This is the declaration that this is, will come to know the great high priest himself, commissioned for the work of the Messiah. John the Baptist was a prophet. He bridges the Old and the New Testament. And by virtue of his father, he was in the priestly line. Jesus being commissioned to do this priestly work of sacrifice. It really harkens back to the development or founding of the, of the priests in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills as the great high priest, the last great high priest. In Leviticus, it says in chapter 8, Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons, that's the Levites, the priests, And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. They were consecrated to do the work of the priesthood. And this is what Jesus was done, was why he was anointed. Take special note of what he says. Let it be so now. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? He is the righteous one. He is our righteous substitute. He's being consecrated to carry out this substitutionary work in your place, in my place. Not to bring a sacrifice that substitutes, to bring himself, the righteous one. To fulfill all righteousness, I'm consecrated now. Consecrated for the task of bearing our sins. To fulfill the righteous requirement of God. He, the righteous one, would take our place. He lived to that moment a life of obedience to God. But now, as the theologians point out, you have the, you might say, official beginning to what we refer to as his active obedience on our behalf. Now, in full view of everyone, he'll keep the law perfectly. He won't sin in any way. He never had before, but now this is this open, active obedience of the Messiah that will gain the gaze of all the religious leaders who will try and they will try and they will try to prove him a sinner, and they never can. So it's the beginning of his act of obedience in full view of everyone, which will lead to his passive obedience where he lays his life down as our worthy substitute. He's worthy, proven by his active obedience. And now passively eventually will lead to that point, he'll lay himself down. This is the consecration unto that work that will lead to the cross. That's the point of what happens here at this baptism. Like a priest being consecrated to go make sacrifices on behalf of the people, he is consecrated to give himself as a sacrifice for the people. James Boyce said, well, Jesus identified himself with us in our humanity, thereby taking on himself the obligation to fulfill all righteousness so that he might be a perfect savior and substitute for us. This was the beginning of his active obedience, obeying all God's commands and decrees. Again, verse 15. Let it be so, John, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. One more connection to the Old Testament that is of note. The prophet Jeremiah, 600 years before Christ comes. 
looks ahead to Messiah. Listen to what he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in all the land. Righteousness, you catch that. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord our righteousness. Let it be so, John, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The third feature of Jesus' baptism that I want you to see, we have here now a divine declaration of his qualifications. This expresses, it's not exactly the same as the second point, I want you to see this. It's a divine declaration. The triune God speaks to his qualifications as the Messiah. Verse 16, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Several things I want to point out. I'll make a brief reference to this, and we'll come back to it again when we see baptisms happen again in the New Testament or in in Matthew. Now, just to get this out of the way, the word baptize or baptizo does not always mean immerse, no matter what your Baptist brothers and sisters tell you. And I've gone to a lot of Baptist school, and they never are able to convince me on the linguistic basis. Uh, Those who maintain that the Greek verb bapto means to dip or immerse That's generally correct. Bapto does mean to dip or to immerse, but those aren't the same, dip and immerse. In fact, in the Old Testament, as in classical Greek, the dipping of hyssop, for instance, is called baptizing it. Uh, Our finger in the blood to spread sacrifice, that's dipping. Dipping one's feet into the Jordan River, that's also baptizo, or bapto, I should say, to to make clear. Now, the word that we translate baptize, like in this case, is baptizo. But it's not referring to the mode or how much water, but rather to the process or the effect. The washing is what it's supposed to indicate. Uh, The emphasis is not on the amount of water, but the water is symbolism of cleaning and cleansing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the essential, those are the essential elements. I would even argue that this passage, strictly speaking, only means immersion if you import that. It's more likely they went down into the water, probably stood in the water, maybe waist deep. It's not that they couldn't have immersed, but the text does not say that by the word. When they come up out of the water, there's the bank is higher than the river itself. It's just as likely that they're in the water, carried out the ceremony. It could have been a pouring for all we know, and then they came up on the bank, and this is where they talk. We don't know for positive as it's often cast. Now, just a little side note. Often the same people that are so ardent baptism is only rightly administered by immersion, also insists that grape juice is the only thing we should use in communion, even though it wasn't invented for 1,800 more years. The point is, it's not the amount of water, it's what it symbolizes. A ceremonial washing symbolizes the removal of sin for us. For Jesus, it was an anointing, it was a consecrating, it was a setting aside to do his priestly work, as mentioned. The standout feature of Jesus' baptism should not be lost here. And it's this picture that unfolds in verse 16, the second part of verse 16 and 17. You have 
a gathering of the triune God, all three persons of the, whole, of the Holy Trinity there speaking to. Now think back at when this occurred before. Um, Ryle points out, J.C. Ryle, it was the whole Trinity which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. It was the whole Trinity again here, which at the beginning of the gospel seems to say, let us save man. And that's what you have with the Trinity speaking like this. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. I wonder why the symbolism of a dove. It's in the Old Testament for peace and for purity and for gentleness, all of that, to be with him, to rest upon him. Uh, And John sees this marker of his favor with God and his enablement by God. And behold, then a voice from heaven, and the audible voice of God does not happen much. And the voice says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What a scene this would have been. James Boyce captures it this way. The entire Trinity was present. The Father who spoke from heaven, the Son of God who was baptized, and the Spirit of God who was seen descending like a dove on Jesus. He says further, it is difficult to think of any testimony more impressive than one in which the entire Godhead was involved. That's a powerful statement and description. Michael Green, who comments on this as well, God Almighty was bringing his long-promised deliverer to usher in the kingdom. He was both messianic son and suffering servant. And the descent of the Spirit not only marked him for this ministry, but also equipped him for the task. This is also encouraging to us to see how the Holy Spirit enables Jesus to carry out what he carries out. Then after he rises and ascends, he sends the Holy Spirit for all of us to have indwell us and help us. Now, I want us to consider the response of God the Father to the willingness of the Son to carry out this work of Messiah. The response of the Father, verse 17, look at it with me. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus says, I step forward to be the Messiah. I am pleased with him. That is a divine declaration that Jesus is quality enough to save anyone. Now, maybe you doubt that a little bit. The triune God does not doubt it. Jesus can do this. Maybe you struggle. God's not struggling with you like you struggle with him. And that's an assurance. That's not to make you feel guilty. It's to make you feel sure that the triune God says Jesus can save you. I don't feel, it doesn't matter what you feel like that day. The triune God says Jesus can, can save you. Now, when you realize this quality that will build your faith and your assurance, and you won't fear death, you won't fear anything, because the God of heaven and earth says Jesus is the Savior of you. But I want you to look at this phrase because it would have caught the ears of the first listeners, no question, because what God speaks is something he has spoken before through his word. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Clearly identifying Jesus as the Messiah King. How do we know this? Well, Psalm 2 is called a royal psalm, a psalm of ascent sometimes. And this is spoken as a blessing over the kings of Israel. But they're often used to picture the ultimate king because when you think of the king of Israel, like he's not that great normally. Still, we want his blessings because it helps all of us. So the psalms say that. But they're always meant to point to the greater king that will come. And listen to what Psalm 2 says. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God would call the kings of Israel his sons to do his work. That's the way he spoke of them. In Psalm 2 on the front level says to the king of Israel, you're my son, and I'll give the nations a heritage. I'll give you blessings. But we know that Psalm 2 points to the greater son, the king. Then you go to Isaiah 42. Several chapters in a row in Isaiah speak of the Messiah to come. In Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Did you hear that about the Messiah? My servant in whom my soul delights, in whom I am well pleased. That's the Messiah. I have put my spirit upon him, Isaiah says, 700 years before Christ came. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness to fulfill all righteousness. Psalm 2, Isaiah 42, both written by God many years before through human prophets, no doubt. But now here we are at his baptism and God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And by the way, that's what he says about you in his presence. What do you mean? I'm not Jesus. No, you're not. But your righteousness has been credited to you. And so when God looks upon you, he says, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. You may not feel that way or something you just did earlier makes you feel not worthy. That's true. You're not worthy. And your feelings will tell you something. But it usually lies to you about ultimate things, right? I'm saying for sure by authority of the Word of God that because you are in Christ, He says to you, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Now, the effect of that knowledge compels us to be more devoted to Him. That's how it works. That's what grace does. It teaches my heart to fear. It binds me to Him. But make no mistake, this is not a hesitancy that the Father has about you. No hesitancy, this is my child in whom I am well pleased because of Christ, who he has declared be of the quality to save us. Rayburn says, the Holy Trinity, well, before Rayburn, it reminds me to build to his statement. There were some years ago, fifth or sixth grade, I can't remember exactly when, but the teacher told me that there would have to be a conference to talk to my parents about my behavior. I thought, this is going to be a big deal. I'll talk my way out of it. Mom comes in, teacher's there. The principal comes in, another teacher comes in. Before you know it, there's six people there to meet with 12-year-old Tony. What did I possibly do? What, what demanded this? I don't remember what, even what it was. Well, come to this union of the Trinity speaking like this. Listen to what Rayburn determines. The Holy Trinity meeting indicated that our salvation would be the whole work of the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We surely learn, he says, how grave our condition is that it required all three persons of the triune God to deliver us from sin and death. We also learn how perfectly complete our salvation is offered in Christ. He finally says, not only the Lord Christ's work, but that of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. Listen closely to what he closes with. No one is going to be disappointed who trusts himself or herself to that work, to that grace, and to that salvation. God said of Jesus, 
This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now I say to you, do you say of Jesus, this is my beloved Savior in whom I am well pleased? Let's bow together in prayer. Oh Lord, the baptism of Jesus is a stark declaration of the quality of our Savior, the Messiah King. The worthiness of Jesus was pronounced publicly that day in the Jordan. The beginning of Jesus' journey to the cross had begun when he came up from the water. Father, may every knee bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, you are our beloved Savior, Savior in whom we are well pleased. Amen. Let's respond together by turning in our hymnals very appropriate.